2: On News Radio six eighty WPTF,
1: and I'm Doug Lewis, certified financial planner,
2: and I'm Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner,
3: and we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. Well, Doug, in the
1: world of retirement plans, what's new? Well, yeah, you know it's uh, it's it's quite interesting, but right now there's been a little bit of an expose happening. The mutual funds in your four hundred one k. Mr. Client, (laughs) may not be mutual funds after all. In other words, in recent years, more and more of the 401k plans have replaced the mutual funds in their investment lineups with what's called collective investment trusts. And not many people knew about these, but they've been there for some time, and they're just getting a lot of publicity now, negative publicity as well as positive publicity, because these investments look and act a lot like mutual funds, but they disclose less about the inner workings of the 401k plan to the 401k participants, the employees.
3: Yeah, these are also known as collective trust funds. That's now, right. These, That's exactly you know, right. And so, so these trusts are, um, they, they look and smell like mutual funds, but there's some real differences. The trusts are accounts available only
1: to retirement plans. They're sponsored by banks, And trust companies, and primarily they're overseen by banking regulators, but not subject to the rules of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. And that is a little scary because the SEC looks at all the mutual funds, these they do not. Yeah, many collective
3: trusts track indexes like index mutual funds. And that would be the second thing that I would say is um, a a little scary. You need to be cautious and and know know about your 401k plan. Collective trusts, cost advantages, and there are some, stem mainly from the fact that they are exempt from the Investment Company Act of 1940. And it's this act which governs
1: mutual funds. Yeah, and that's the problem. Mutual funds are required by law to deliver prospectuses and periodic reports to the investors, including those people that are in the 401k plans, as well as they have to make certain filings to the SEC. Well, without these rules, it is true, trusts can save on the cost, but these lower fees that the trusts save on, they come with trade-offs because collective trusts don't have ticker symbols. What that means is that 401k participants or employees aren't able to track their performance or compare them with other investments that have public websites which publish mutual fund performance data.
3: Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management, 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000. And I'll tell you, that's a big problem when someone comes into our office and says, evaluate what I have or evaluate from these funds that are available to me in my retirement plan offered through my employer. Well, if there's no way to dig deeper and find out more information, even at the advisor level, it can be quite frustrating.
1: As you're saying, Deborah, one of the things that we always ask our investors, our new clients that come to see us for advice, we ask them to come with a a list of questions that they want answered during that consultation. And one of the most popular questions is, what's your opinion of the investments in my 401k plan? And of course, for us to answer that, we go to the websites of the different funds inside. We look at the track records and so on but there are certain ones that we're not able to because they are these collective trust. That's what they are. And that is a problem for us to evaluate that's right. And in general, these com- these com-
3: the collective trusts, just if you compare them to mutual funds, they are a lot less transparent. And that for you as the individual person who is investing into your employer's retirement plan makes it hard to know, well, what are you investing in if it's less transparent? If you want some advice... It, it makes it very hard for the person trying to give you advice. So there's a lot to know about what you have in your plan and a lot to learn about whether or not you have a mutual fund or a collective trust. If you'd like further information, call us at 919-872-7000 or go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. Well, Doug... Give us some good advice about why not to market time or follow someone who tries to do it. Because this is an awfully um,
1: foolish thing to do. It's foolish, and yet you hear it promoted so often. Just think about it. If you want to make money in the stock market, you have to be in the market. Market timing for fun and for profit. Now, that sounds great, doesn't it? And why wouldn't you want to have fun while you're making a profit? And why wouldn't you want to invest in the market when it's going down? And all those questions, but unfortunately, that's not the way it works. And there was uh, an article written by a one of my peers, Harold Ivansky. He is a certified financial planner. I've known Harold for many, many years. He's also a professor at Texas Tech University. And uh, he wrote a very interesting article pointing out that there is an overwhelming a temptation to follow the guru who promises to help you avoid bear markets by trying to ride market updrafts and avoid the drops. And that approach of beating the market is an overwhelming temptation for a lot of investors.
3: Yeah, a simple analysis of market history would show that if you called the market correctly every year, you'd be rich. If you were correct in calling the market even half of the time, your return wouldn't be too bad either. Given those odds, why wouldn't you give market timing a shot?
1: Yeah, the the problem... (laughs)
3: And it sounds logical. And then the problem is, Doug?
1: (laughs) That in many cases, simple statistics can be very, very misleading. That's right. Yeah, What matters is not the average, but the actual annual sequence of the returns (laughs) that make up that average. Remember, a market timer has to be right twice. First, he's got to be right when you get out of the market. Then he's got to be right when you get back in.
3: That's right. Because if you don't get back in at the right time, you lose as much as if you don't get out at the right time. All of this is is really... uh, uh, poignant because let me ask you to name any anyone listening right now the top 10 market timers of all time. I doubt anyone can come up with one. <laughs> How about the top five? I doubt anyone out there listening can th- name anyone or the top one. And the point being that we, we're, we're sort of tongue-in-cheek making here is... If anyone had successfully timed the market over an extended period of time, we would know his or her name, and they'd be one of the richest people in the world. The fact that we don't have any names should be a warning sign not to chase the illusion of market timing.
1: Yeah, we could name names. Most of our listeners would go ahead and feel real fine if they named, you know, the number one basketball player, (laughs) you know, or the number one of the top ten presidents. But ask them who's the number one of the top market timers and pretty much you're going to get a a zero response. And that's because uh, there's an illusion. And that should be a warning sign to chase the illusion of market timing because research has shown that when you factor in the transaction cost, you have to be correct almost 70% of the time. And that assumes instantaneous switching from stocks to cash and back. And the real world doesn't work that way. If you factor in a time delay for switching to look for a market confirmation, quote, quote, then you're going to have to be correct almost all of the time to beat the buy and hold or the buy and manage alternative. And the moral of the story, according to Lewis Financial Management, according to Harold Evansky, is if you want to make money in the market, you have to be in the market all the time.
3: That's right. There's no such thing as market timing. There is not. There's good stock picking, and there's not good stock picking. And at the bigger level where we should all be is picking good managers of good pools of investments, and that's where we help our our clients. This is Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. Our number at the office is 919-872-7000. Call me at 919-872-7000.
1: Okay, let's take Chris's call. Chris, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you?
4: Well, I have a question about college funding. Okay. And uh, my question uh, has to do with about how much should you be putting in a year? Uh, I've got an 8-year-old and a 4-year-old, uh-huh. and I've got 25000 put away so far for the 8-year-old and fifteen for the 4-year-old. Uh-huh. So basically I've been doing about 5 a year trying to.
1: All right. Well, and I'm I think, just
4: wondering if you know if I'm putting in too much, or should I cut? Can I cut back that, or should I actually increase it?
1: All right. Let me ask you a few questions first okay. of all. How old are you, Chris?
4: Forty-three.
1: You're forty-three. Is it one in? Are you working and your wife, or just yourself? Just myself. All right. And what's your income level?
4: It's over two hundred and fifty.
1: You're making two hundred and fifty thousand a year. Okay. So you have no problem in setting aside income. No. All right. Now the question is, where are you setting aside next? Eight-year-old got twenty-five thousand. Where is it going into?
4: Uh, it's going into uh, uniform gifts, and some of that is going into um, um, municipal bonds, things things of that sort.
1: Yeah. Um, okay, now that's the mistake you're making. You're, okay. Actually, you're making two mistakes right. there. Uh, the first thing is I'm now recommending to all of my clients that we do not do uniform gift to minors acts accounts any longer. Okay. And the reason being the cost of college education, your eight-year-old, will probably have to spend close to a half million dollars to to get that kid through school if he goes to a private school. Mm -hmm. That means that if that child at age 18 suddenly has the right to have a half million dollars to do what he wants with, he may decide that he thinks he's the next Ringo Starr
4: and he doesn't need to go to college. Yeah, that's a concern.
1: Right. So what I would recommend is, number one, fund to the absolute maximum, but don't fund to a UGMA account. In other words, there is no question of how much that you shouldn't be putting aside. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would approach it in a financial planning format Is I would go to Chris's financial planning uh, arena. I would look at Chris's living expenses. I would go to Chris's desired financial independence date. And then I would develop an asset allocation formula that encompassed their retirement goals at their time and then include in it.
4: Include that. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot more sense because, uh, yeah, you're exactly right with a half a million dollars, you know.
1: Oh, I mean, it's well, really mean, scary. If I had that
4: at 18, I wouldn't have done what I did.
1: Sure. And imagine even when you were 21. Could yeah, you have handled exactly. a half million dollars at 21? Yeah, that's right. Personally, I believe that you can do better designing the whole thing for yourself. And then letting the child have it at that time, the tax benefit that you gain, I don't think is worth it. No, in
4: fact, I've uh, complained uh, about uh, uh, some of the taxes we've had to pay on that through capital gains and things
1: of that sort. Right. The other thing is, municipal bonds are the wrong animal anyway. Yeah. You definitely shouldn't be in muni bonds when you're looking at something 15 years down the road. No. You need to have someone look at the entire thing and look at it from the other viewpoint and clued that in. And if you call my office during the week, if you like, I'll set up an appointment. Linda will go ahead and, and tell you how we approach it for clients of ours in the same situation. That's
4: probably a good idea. Okay.
2: Very good. And if you uh, would like to call the office, the number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. And thanks so much for calling, Chris. All right. Bye. Take care.
1: And I forgot to mention, Chris, if you call the office and make an appointment, we will be giving away a free book this week to... Uh, All of the people who come in for their first appointments, it'll either be the book called Middle Class Millionaires or a book called Wealthy Barber or a book called Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth. I know last week the clients that came in to see us, they really enjoyed receiving one of those books, so it'll be yours when you come to see us.
3: This is Deborah Lewis. Call 919-872-7000. To set an appointment with me regarding your financial situation, call me at 919-872-7000.
1: What's new in the area of investment planning?
2: Well, Doug, you know, many of our listeners that have called in want to know, how do I know which
1: investments to choose? Good question, Lynn. Real good question. You know, a certified financial planner can first help you determine your current financial situation and your personal goals. What do you want your investments to achieve, for example? Are you investing for retirement or college education, or do you want to raise capital to start a business?
2: And people generally are concerned about their age, uh, their net worth, what's your tax bracket and what goals will determine what types of investments you should be in, right, Doug?
1: Yeah, those goals in mind help your financial planner help you to prepare an investment policy statement, which is really crucial.
2: Well, Doug, what exactly is an investment policy statement?
1: An investment policy statement, Lynn, is your investment roadmap. It keeps you steady through good times and bad. It can help you quickly eliminate investment ideas that just don't fit, saving both time and costly mistakes. And it can also provide you with realistic expectations and a way to monitor the actual performance of your investments. Now, that policy statement should outline a number of things in it. And some of those include
2: your investment goals. Right, Doug? And the minimum level of return that you need so that you
1: can achieve those goals. Those are important to be in the policy statement, along with what types of investments you will and will not include, and what portion of the total portfolio each investment will comprise.
2: And also how long the assets will be in the portfolio and the anticipated inflation rate as well as the tax bracket assumptions. Right,
1: Once the investment policy is in place, then it's time and only then is it time to construct an investment portfolio, Lynn.
2: Well, Doug, what exactly is an investment portfolio?
1: You know, it's a funny thing, Lynn, that you would ask that question because you think everybody knows what an investment portfolio is, but I would say 80% of the people that I meet don't know what an investment portfolio is. And what it really is, is the combination of more than one investment asset such as stocks or bonds, cash, real estate, international investments. And
2: how you and your financial planner construct this portfolio is important because different types of investments do better in different economic conditions. And Doug, what would you say about diversifying?
1: Well, by diversifying your investments in a portfolio, you are more likely to reduce the volatility, which is a fancy word for risk, and also Increase your potential return. Well, Doug, what about percentages? What kind of percentages? Percentages of return? That's hard to predict, Lynn. You can't do that. You can only look backwards. You can look backwards and see what percentage returns have happened over time uh, in different categories, but research does indicate that over 90% of a portfolio's performance is attributable not to the percentage returns, but to the selection and balancing of the different asset classes.
2: I've read that a a mere 5% is attributable to the selection of specific funds, but only 1% to luck.
1: Yeah, 5% is, is virtually nothing. Most of the time, what makes a portfolio work or not work is not the hot investment, but it's the way that you've balanced it and that's where the certified financial planner helps you design this portfolio with the correct asset classes for you.
3: You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call to make an appointment with Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner of Lewis Financial Management. Call 919 872 7000
2: or visit our website, dougandlinda.com. Doug, you know, some people have raised the question why don't I just select today's hottest investments? What do you think about this?
1: Well, we hear it all the time, Lynn. Today's hottest investments, however, are oftentimes tomorrow's coldest turkeys. You know, you got to avoid the fads and the fancies. Invest for the long term because too often people randomly pick out investments as if they're pieces of a puzzle. They'll choose a hot mutual fund they read about in a personal finance magazine or buy a piece of real estate that some cousin recommended.
2: How many times I have heard that story over and over again. And the problem is that people don't know where the pieces go because they don't have their whole investment uh, picture in front of them. And quite possibly the pieces belong to different puzzles. So, therefore, they're inappropriate for a person's portfolio. Correct?
1: Yeah, individual investments should reflect the guidelines established in the policy statement. Now, if you've had a financial plan produced, it should have a policy statement in it.
2: Our number in Raleigh is 8727,000. That's USA 7,000.
1: But in either case, the policy statement should reflect or the investments in the portfolio should reflect what's in the policy statement.
2: Well, Doug, other listeners wonder, should I buy individual stocks or bonds or mutual funds? And a lot of people have questions about what should I be in, particularly if, they're, if they've been in CDs or if they've inherited money and they want to know, what should I do with this money?
1: It really depends upon a lot of factors, but one of them is your risk tolerance, and another is the amount of money you have available to invest. And of course, the time and the interest you and your advisor have to study, to monitor your investments, and consider the advantages and disadvantages of each, depending on your own needs and circumstances.
2: Well, Doug, some of our listeners also want to know, should I
1: consider investing overseas? Foreign stocks and foreign bonds are more volatile, but they oftentimes perform better when the U.S. market performs poorly, and thus you can find a way to reduce the overall risk of your portfolio.
2: You know, Doug, I've read that with many international mutual funds available, it's relatively easy to purchase a part of the rest of the world if you and your advisor find such uh, an investment appropriate.
1: Yeah, that's that's a given, Lynn. The point is that the capitalization around the world, the investment opportunities around the world, are out there far and far beyond the United States. And if you're going to go ahead and participate in wealth accumulation, you need to expose yourself to international investing it's a good way to balance a portfolio on the one hand because world markets don't move in perfect harmony Uh, as one market goes up another goes down and so forth what's the best way to go about
2: investing
1: well there's no one preferred way but a good way is dollar cost averaging if you've got money coming in over a regular basis actually there's a wonderful book that I like Linda called the wealthy barber and it makes a strong case for accumulating wealth on a regular basis, month by month by month, uh, if that's the way your money comes to you. Uh, Then there are other ways to consider with regard to lump sums and trust and so forth. But in the dollar cost averaging methodology, what you're doing there is you're trying to keep yourself from timing the market and letting time, not timing, do the work for you. Then by diversifying and investing regularly, you're able to more likely earn a reasonable return since some investment markets over time rise in value and others go down in value, but most of them will rise in value. Call me, Deborah Lewis,
3: Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. Call me at 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000.
2: Now, a very serious question here. How does one avoid investment
1: scams? You know, Linda, it's a sad thing, but if you've been in this business as long as I have, you've seen the most amazing number of scams out there, and you're amazed at the Greater Fool theory. You know what the Greater Fool theory is? No. There's always a Greater Fool. There's always a Greater Fool. I mean, it's unbelievable. The wise people that I've spoken to, the wealthy people who have swallowed hook, line, and sinker. They- oh
2: yeah, they buy those uh, the
1: the pitch on the buying coins coins and gold and what was that offshore trust that guy called you about you remember that one yeah. how to cheat the united states out of all their taxes beca- by a, a, a constitution- constitutional constitutional trust when that what yeah. it was called the constitutional trust and everything oh, and then the cellular telephone deals and the te- i mean one after the other one investment rule is if it's too good to be true it probably is and the second rule is <laughs> never invest dollars as a result of a telephone pitch the majority of investment scams are boiler room telephone operations. You should always demand a detailed prospectus and other financial offering materials before making any decision. You should refuse any buy now sales pitches and you should be working with a financial advisor, in my opinion.
2: What are some common investment mistakes that people make, Doug? Let's, let's review those very quickly.
1: Well, mistakes, uh, I guess the biggest mistake is they don't start soon enough. You know, an investment of $100 a month when you're 25 years old and you reinvest everything is going to be over a, a third of a million dollars by retirement age. The second in, uh, mistake I guess people make is they don't develop any plan, any investment plan.
2: And they don't diversify their investments.
1: Big problem. You remember that Putting one... all
2: your eggs in one basket.
1: <laughs> I would tell you, as soon as somebody finds something they like, everything goes in. Everything goes in. Like the fellow that came to see you recently with $2 million, that one stock.
2: Right. And people often have unrealistic expectations.
1: Unrealistic expectations, big problem. To earn higher returns, you usually have to take more risk. Lower risk usually means a lower return. And
2: most people don't invest for the long term. And basically what happens, you can reduce the risk of more volatile investments such as stocks, correct?
1: If you do invest for the long term, that's exactly right. And another mistake people make is they don't take the responsibility for their own investments. They don't educate themselves about their investments. And they fail to keep a close eye on their investments. I get
2: more people that call me and say, well, I've got this. I've got this retirement plan, but I'm not sure what it is or what's
1: in it. If your financial planner or your investment advisor isn't willing to explain the fundamentals of investing and the advantages and disadvantages of a specific investment you're considering, you should not work with that advisor.
2: And many people fail to take full advantage of their 401k plans, their IRAs, or any other tax advantage saving plans.
1: Those are the primary uh, mistakes people make, Lynn.
2: If you have any further questions or if we can be of any further assistance, um, you can call our office at eight seven two seven thousand in the Raleigh area, and we'll be happy to do what we can to assist you.
1: Well, George, how can I help you? This is Doug Lewis. Doug, I have a question about mutual funds. What advantage, if
5: any, is there to be had in buying a load mutual fund? And if there's no advantage, why are there so many of them?
1: The advantage to buying a no-load fund? Is a load fund. Oh, that's real simple. That's like saying, what's the advantage of going ahead and getting a real estate broker to sell my house for me when I can sell it myself? I uh, I thought you were going to ask the other question. What's the advantage of a no-load fund, and well, there isn't
5: either way. I'd like to know the advantages uh, going either
1: all way. All right. Well, uh, first of all, there is no real advantage of you of buying a a no-load fund or a load fund. There is no real difference between them. That's not the way you look at the issue. What you really want to know is what's the performance and how has the fund with its managers done to make money over a length of time and uh, that's all you do. You just go ahead and you find the if, if a if a particular set of, of managers can make more money for you than another set of managers, then go with that manager and don't worry about if you had to go ahead and you know pay a few dollars uh, to find uh, a broker or a planner to put you into that fund. I, you know, don't be penny wise and pound foolish. Depends how long the money's going to be there too. If you're going to put a, pay a five percent load on a fund. And you plan to keep your money there only three years, yeah, then that's wrong. On the other hand, if you're looking for long and but you shouldn't be in the mute in the mutual funds if you could be doing that anyway, because mutual funds are for long-term investing, at least five years. And over a five-year period, you'll find that five percent walks down to about a half a percent or one percent, and then over a ten year period, it becomes an infinitesimal amount. The other thing is most no-load funds. Have high fees inside the fund. Yeah, right, no, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, nobody works for free.
5: So, so really, uh, so really, you, you've got to. Just forget about that and make the decision on what your needs are and the quality of the
1: fund. That's right. Look at the managers. Remember, a mutual fund is a group of men's minds who are going into the pit for you on Wall Street, and they're buying and selling stocks, and you're looking at their ability to select and their long-term performance record. Or if it's a bond fund, it's a group of men who are making their uh, decisions on what bonds to buy and what bonds to sell. And so forth. That's the whole key to this thing. They never see the load that doesn't go to them. That goes. That goes to the broker or the planner, whoever it is uh, that's putting the money with them.
5: Do you uh, do you make recommendations to your clients on which funds to go into?
1: Yes, I do. Okay. Yes, I do. I'd rather not on the air yeah, because well, I, I don't like. Yeah, way. I don't like to step on anybody's feet. Right. But yeah. Uh, Um, I track as many of the funds that I feel are good, and I guess every planner has their own special ones that they feel comfortable that have done well over a 5 or 10 or 20-year period or whatever.
2: And if there's anything we can do to help you with that, you can call our office here in Raleigh at eight seven two seven thousand, and we'll see what we can do to help you.
1: Well, be in touch. All right, thank you for calling, George.
2: Well, Doug,
3: what's new in the world of financial planning might surprise you, and it may be um, more of what we already know. Americans... Worry more about finances than anything else. It has become our our number one worry. It's increasingly hard to figure out whether Americans have a bigger problem with their finances or with chronic worrying. So here are some ways to see that you do need help. You need an advisor and you need a plan.
1: Yeah, actually, I'm glad you brought it up, Deborah, because Americans think more about money on a daily basis now than about anything else, according to all the studies that I'm seeing. Actually, one out of five Americans fears living paycheck to paycheck for the rest of their life, with almost just as many people worried about being in debt forever. So never being able to retire appears to be a common worry For more than one out of seven people, according to the studies that I'm seeing.
3: Yeah, American workers just don't understand the retirement planning process, which is ironic because studies show that a way to reduce financial stress is to have a plan. Those fears are biggest among the age groups most likely to face them. So with younger respondents, those in the early stages of their work career, they're scared about a lifetime of debt or continuing to live paycheck to paycheck, while older Americans can't see retirement in their future.
1: I was thinking about the younger and the older and the younger and the older and I realized that the clients that we could that are seeing us, we are getting more and more younger clients. We yes, are. we are. We're getting more that are in their thirties and forties. Uh and that decade, they have a whole different set of parameters and things to look forward to and fears in front of them. And then we have those that are in the fifties and sixties and they're sitting on the edge of that retirement and they're looking at life through a different set of, of glasses. And then we have the retirees who are in their 70s and 80s. Right. And of course, they have a whole different set. But the matter of stress is a huge issue. Now, part of the I'll never get there worry problem in the young ones and the old ones comes from a financial planning industry that talks about ideal levels of saving and investment without recognizing that falling short of those high levels of saving does not leave the individual totally destitute. And I have to agree that we're probably guilty of that in uh, amongst my, many of my peers because sometimes there's different ways to slice the loaf to get bread. That's right. That's right.
3: Even if you don't get to some sort of an ideal number, it just means you change things. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of financial planning is about, well, if I didn't get there, what do I do? But um, a lot of this advice, for example, you know, the standard planning advice that is out there is that you need to amass a portfolio that is big enough so that you can live off, let's say, a 4% return of your nest egg. Well... Someone would, who needed 50000 a year in retirement would need to amass $1.25 Well, That's right. That's, that might feel like too much or and, too well, hard. Well, for some
1: people, it does feel. It feels impossible. Others are already there. But that kind of savings feels impossible for workers who've raised a family, helped pay for college, and simply haven't saved during their working years.
3: Yeah, this ideal retirement savings goal could be a range of savings that starts with whatever level is necessary to not outlive the savings without guaranteeing a large inheritance to heirs.
1: Yeah, and that's where the actual face-to-face certified financial planner who's working on a fee basis as we are can really help because a, a robo-advisor, a, a a model, that that really, a uh, computer mechanism, that's not really what you want.
3: If you need help, call me, Deborah Lewis, 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000.
1: There is a big difference between saving enough to be self-sufficient for life and amassing a portfolio that theoretically would allow you to Afford your lifestyle forever. Now, when we hear it that way, what I recognize and Deborah, you recognize is there's two different methodologies. There's what's called the depletion formula method. And that would be enough to just have to give you everything you need to live for the rest of your life. And then when you die, you've used it up. That's the depletion formula. And that's a smaller number than the afford to live your lifestyle forever, which is indeed financial independence where you're not depleting it. Well, somewhere in between those two is very possible for clients. The way that we approach it is starting with, well, what is that need? Not I need 50000 a year or I need 90000 a year. The real way to approach it, as I said, there are ways to slice the loaf in different ways. The way to approach it is to analyze those expenses and categorize those into two basic differentials. One, of course, are what do I need to live on a recurring monthly basis?
3: That's right. Those things that I know that I'm going to get a bill for every month or I'm going to spend money on every month.
1: So there you might be only 3000 a month even though you're spending 50,000 a year, 3000 a month for your recurring expenses when we analyze them might only be 36,000 a year. Whereas your annual expenses might be 50. So what do we do with this number? All right, because that other 15000 would be non-monthly stuff, wouldn't it? Such That's a, right. Yeah, such you, as...
3: Well, you could have insurance payments that come once a year. Those are fixed, but annual, not monthly. You could, But most of these things fall into the category of discretionary expenses.
1: Such as?
3: Oh, vacation, clothing,
1: um Anything that's out of the ordinary, that's, yeah. that's
3: not going to be a, yeah, a gifts,
1: monthly. Gifts. Clothing, vacation, travel, all those things are not monthly expenses. Right. So once we analyze it that way, right. then what can we do? We can go ahead and build from there a method of accumulation to reach that target number that you need. That's right. And
3: And, and if you're at the point to where you are facing retirement, and now you need to know, well, this is what I have and how long will it last. Now you take that very real number of what you need for recurring monthly expenses and the stuff that isn't monthly, and now you know how much your portfolio needs to produce for each of those different kinds of expenses. Exactly. You can take out a lot less from a portfolio. It might be a lot less than 4%. It's based now on real dollar needs that you need for Monthly
1: expenses. I think that's important to realize. Now, our listeners should know that because we don't do that in our office. Uh, the we we don't set a let's make an automatic four percent. Right. No, we work backwards. What is your need, and right. work backwards from there, and get the need as a withdrawal. Absolutely.
3: So let's take that hypothetical example you just gave. If you need three thousand dollars a month, it has to come from your portfolio. Well, right now, that three thousand dollars, depending on what the size of the portfolio is, might be a certain percentage. But if we're asked, what, what if for requesting three thousand be sent, then the client has three thousand to spend when it comes time for those once a year expenses that might be large, like let's say insurance or something, or even the discretionary items. Now you go back to the portfolio. You're not having to withdraw at a higher than the needed amount. If you need help, call me, Deborah Lewis, 919-872-7000, 919-872-7000.
2: Doug, as far as giving, what does a charitable trust do?
1: Well, I think the best way to understand how the trust works to uh, not share your wealth as much as enhance the total wealth position, how you can help yourself, your community, and your family and you don't have to be a Ted Turner to really be able to do some good, even helping yourself do good. And you have to think of the trust in the form of six players. I like to call them players. There are six players in a charitable trust scenario. Okay. The first player is the donor. Right. Now, the donor is the person who sets up the trust and he gives something into the trust. Uh, if it's a business owner, he might give his stock into the trust. If it's a, uh, a person who has a stock portfolio, it might be he. It, it mi- might
2: be someone who inherited a farm.
1: Right. But is not going to do farming. Exactly. Uh, but the donor is the one who sets up the trust. And then he creates this trust and he names a trustee. And he gives something from himself to the trustee. So the trustee is a very important player. I like to have the trust set up so the client is his own trustee.
2: Set up a trust where the client is his own trustee. Right. A self-trustee trust.
1: Well, uh, where he he identifies himself as the donor, but also himself as the trustee. Then he gives from himself to himself, so to speak. Now, the third player after the trustee is called the income beneficiary. That's the person that the trustee pays. All right. The income beneficiary. And the fourth player is the charitable or the non-profit beneficiary. And that's the person or the party that, or the non-profit that's going to get what's left after everybody dies and is gone.
2: Is that what's known as the remainderman?
1: Yes, they get the remainder of what's in the trust after the trust is over. And usually I like to run them after both people have passed away, the husband and the wife. Now, the income beneficiary can also be the same person as the donor and as the trustee. But we have to be very careful when we do it this way because we want to make sure that there is no self-dealing. But if you do it this way, the trustee again then gets to sell everything he gave that the donor gave to the trust and pay no capital gains tax and then reinvest the money in mutual funds and other normal investments. So it can be very powerful if you get the parties straightened out.
2: And what about the administrator?
1: The administrator is an important role. The administrator is the party that files the tax returns and keeps track to show the IRS that there's no hanky-panky. The sixth player is the investment advisor. Exactly. That's the one that's going to invest all the money after you've sold everything. You want both the administrator and the investment advisor to be under employment by the trustee.
2: To any of our listeners, if you have a question or if you would like to receive our introductory packet of information, I'll be happy to send it to you. Our number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That is USA 7000. Get a notebook and start jotting down some of those questions and work with a financial planner. Well, Doug, you are going to give us the first of five tips for sharing the family
3: vacation home.
1: Yeah, I would say number one, know who owns it. Knowing how the house is actually and legally owned will go a long way to keeping the peace about how decisions are made If you're the sole owner of the house, or you own it with your wife, then ownership's fairly simple matter. But for many families, a house might have been passed down from parents to children, even to grandchildren, extended family. And in other cases, related family members, like siblings, might decide to pool their resources together and buy a place together. Now, some families have set up entities such as limited liability companies, and that's fine to allocate ownership among family members, but because ownership is the starting point and legally the ending point for rights and responsibilities, make sure that everyone knows how much they own and how they own it.
2: A second tip for sharing a family vacation home is have regular meetings. Homeowners should meet or have a group conference call on a regular basis discuss any major issues that come up and these will include long-term issues such as do we need a new roof and also short-term issues like who can use it for spring break a third
3: tip might be creating rules for just the usage of the home you will need to establish rules on when it can be used who's responsible for the upkeep What are the expectations for cleanliness and tidiness? And what to do when something unexpected occurs on the property? The home might mean very different things to different family members, and how they want to use it will reflect that. These topics are best discussed openly when the owners meet, and we always encourage us or a financial planner to be there, too.
1: Yeah, and we have had those meetings in our office, of course. This
3: is Deborah Lewis. Our number at the office is 919 872 7000. 919 872 7000.
1: The fourth uh, tip would be to decide on the allocation of the costs because there are basically two kinds of costs for most vacation homes. You've got capital costs, and you've got costs related to ongoing usage. Capital costs that's going to include things like uh, purchases any major changes, improvements to the property, such as a kitchen renovation. Owners should share capital costs proportionate to their ownership. Well, that's pretty simple, and they should be shared equally when the house is sold. But the questions can be difficult when the financial resources vary across the owners, and usage costs can become difficult to allocate when the level of use varies across family members. One member is using Mm -hmm. it much more than the other and those use costs. So those types of issues need to be discussed again with the help of someone like myself, a a certified financial planner who can keep the peace so that as things go on, there is no disagreement.
2: And the fifth tip for sharing a family vacation home is the legal nature of the home's ownership will determine what family members can do with their interests in the event of a death or divorce or the possibility of a sale. And tenants in common can sell or gift their interests to anyone they choose while the share of a tenant with rights or survivorship will automatically transfer to the other owners at death. So owners should discuss their wishes about what they can do with their ownership interests in each of these cases and other possible scenarios. So to all of our listeners, if you happen to own a vacation home jointly with other family members, you should also coordinate your estate plans with whoever owns the home to prevent any surprises if something should happen like the death a divorce, or a sale. And the best time to do so is long before any of those circumstances arise. You're listening to Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, Linda Lewis, and Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner, the Lewis Family with Lewis Financial Management, LLC in Midtown Raleigh. Call us at 919-872-7000 if you would like to schedule an appointment to address your financial planning issues. Let's take another caller.
1: Yo, is that you? Yes. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? Good
5: afternoon, sir. I am 45 and for various circumstances in my life, I was not able to start saving for retirement until about three years ago. I'd like to know what can I do to maximize the amount that I can generate for retirement. While still maintaining a, a reasonable degree of safety for my funds.
1: Well, tell me a little bit about yourself, Gil. How, you say you're 45 years old? I'm
5: 45. You
1: married seven. or single?
5: I'm married, three small children.
1: What's your income, Gil?
5: About 150.
1: All right, so you're making 150, and is your wife working? No. All right, so that's the only income. Do you know what your living expenses are? Um,
5: roughly about $6,000 a month.
1: All right. So you're spending about six thousand a month at seventy-two thousand a year. Um, let me ask you this now: What have you accumulated so far in the way of personal investments?
5: Uh, we've got some money in, in uh, mutual funds, about twenty-five thousand or so. Twenty-five thousand.
1: And which funds are you in, or what kind of funds are they?
5: Uh, we've got about half and half. One is a, one is a growth and in income, and the other is a short-term
1: bond. All right. Um, at your age, you don't want to be in a short-term bond fund for sure. What about um, retirement plans, Gil? Uh,
5: have
1: I you, do you have a retirement plan?
5: I do not have anything else. I do okay. not have any.
1: Okay, uh, I can understand why you're concerned. What you need, because you're right, uh, that's a uh, that's a pretty tough. How old are your kids?
5: Four, three, and uh, twenty months.
1: All right. So you've got yeah, you've got a tough situation, what you should do, but the good thing is you've got a decent income. Yeah. Um, what you need to do uh, is, number one, you need to do a living expense analysis before anything else. Okay. Uh, you need to set up an appointment to meet with a certified financial planner and have a living expense analysis done so we can find out something that's called the net margin. That number at the office, by the way, is nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand the net margin is the most crucial piece of the picture because we need to get your income minus your expenses to find out what you have available. Then that number, whatever it is uh, you know, if that number is 5,000 a month, then that's good because 5,000 a month then would be able to go into uh, a particular investment program. If it's only 2,000 a month or whatever, then uh-huh. then we need to go ahead and and use an asset allocation model to determine where to go. Now, it's a, it's a delicate balance in terms of selecting the vehicles, but for sure, I think you could be in either growth and income funds or growth funds or international funds. There's no reason that you should be in bond funds if you're trying to go ahead and catch up, even though you're 45 years old. Besides, if you got a newborn baby or a little one, you know you're working for the next 20 years. Oh, yeah. All right, so with a 20-year time frame in front of you, you could go ahead and do that. The bottom line has to be, to start with the dollar amount and then start figuring what vehicles, whether they be the internationals, the growth funds, or the growth in incomes, will meet the need. We have to get the living expenses today. We've got to inflate them to the target date that we want. And if it's a 20 year period, that's good. If it's a 10 year period, that's, you know, that's what we got to use. Right. And then work backwards and see if we can go ahead and meet it with one of those three or one of those four types of vehicles.
2: Gil, if you'll call the office, I'll be happy to send you some of this information so that you can take a better look at the uh, living expenses. Okay. And uh, the number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. You take care, Gil.
1: Thank you, you, Gil. All right, right, take care. Thank you very much. Paul, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can we help you this evening?
6: Uh, Yeah i'm uh my name is paul i'm a 49 year old uh no kids and um i have a uh, one investment property i'm living in and four condos and i was interested uh, i've been you know i haven't done very well in the stock market all that stuff so um i was interested in selling those all buying a bigger house and then uh refinancing after the properties went up do you feel like that's a reasonable investment uh, objective given my age and everything? No,
1: I would say that's a pretty much a recipe for disaster. But uh, let let me uh, let me help you think through it a little bit, Paul. You say that you have no children. Are you married?
6: Uh, I'm, I'm divorced.
1: So it's just you, okay. All right. And what's your income, Paul?
6: Uh, about eighty five thousand.
1: Eighty five thousand income. And what have you accumulated thus far, other than the condos and the investment property that you're living in?
6: Uh, currently, I have um, about 110 thousand in a 401k and uh, 40k in an uh, investment account. I currently have it in uh, uh, gold stocks, but I'm going to get it out pretty soon.
1: Yeah, that's a smart thing to do. By the way, make sure you get it out at least three months ago.
3: All right. <laughs> All right, all so right. you've got about 150,000, 110 on the retirement side and 40,000 in the non-retirement side.
1: Okay, well first of all, you should realize that the best thing you've got going for you is your age. You have a right. lot of life in front of you, okay? Right. Now, with that, you have the ability to do what we call dollar cost averaging, which allows the compounding effect to happen if you are in the right mutual funds. But on the other hand, that's a big if. Now, you don't want to just be picking funds. You want to be picking managers. In other words, when you select the funds, you want to know who is the manager of the fund and what's their track record. You want to establish, you want to look at the track record over the last 10 years. You want to find out how they did in two thousand and eight two thousand nine, two thousand ten, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then number all right. all right, number two, and when you meet with us and write down our office number, our office number is nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand. That's nine one nine USA seven thousand. Go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. dot com. You'll see some videos of us explaining financial planning and call us for an appointment. But we want to begin with analyzing your living expenses. How much do you think that you spend of your hundred of your eighty five
6: thousand? Uh I probably save about uh thirty to thirty right. five thousand a year.
1: Okay. So if you can that's about three thousand a little less than three thousand a month, right? All right. So if we can go ahead and get a comfortable growth assumption on 3000 a month over the next 20 years, you'll be shocked to see that you indeed can become what we call middle-class millionaires. Right. As a matter of fact, there's a book about them that when you come to see us, we'll give you a copy of the book called Middle-Class Millionaires. But it's not because of hitting it rich or flipping properties. No, 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 no. It's actually having a plan and working with mutual fund managers that you're comfortable how they've done and we right. will help you select them and, and and find them and so forth and show you how to go ahead and do that but that's what you need to do do not bet on real estate real estate is pretty much going to be a huge disappointment to you you're going to be dealing with either tax gains on ta- or 1031 exchanges and you're not going to be able to get the compounding effect
6: Does that you don't recommend? uh, You don't recommend I sell the condos, or I
1: do recommend you sell the condos, but I don't recommend you go into another property. I see.
3: See with that compounding, I mean, I'm just doing some back of the napkin computing here. But if you were to do Paul three thousand a month over fifteen years, and I only put in seven percent as an average, so at the end of the of the fifteen years, you averaged seven percent. Right. You'd accumulate. Over $950,000.
1: And that's before adding in the money he gets out of the sale of the condos. Right, and that's
3: just right. the $3,000 a month setting it aside. So even if it was nothing more than just harnessing this ability, I mean, to be in a position where you save 3000 a month, that's wonderful. Maximize it. Use it. In just 15 years, you'll have accidentally accumulated almost a million dollars. Okay. You know, it's there's a lot of power. Doug was right. You've got numb, the age is your, is your power here. Well, Paul, okay. I look forward to talking to you specifically more um, off the show. To everyone else, thank you so much for listening. We'll be here again next Sunday night. Doug and I are available at 919 872 7000. Have a great week, everybody.
1: Remember, your money matters because your financial
0: future is at stake.